You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 751 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland. It is Tuesday evening, and joining me for the first time in a little while, part four of a five-part series, Ben Ladner of Sports Illustrated is here. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm living the dream, my friend. Great. Yeah. Uh, that's not that's not really true at all, but we're okay. We're hanging in there. Everything all right with you? Yeah, as well, as good as it can be, you know, uh, staying inside, trying to go for walks and uh, stand in the front yard when I can, but other than that, there's not a whole lot to do. Yeah, lots of uh, Netflix watching, I'm sure. I, I'm still playing along on the Dave job quite a bit. And uh, yeah, surprisingly kind of busy. I, I do things for Uproc Sports and Dime Magazine. And uh, surprisingly busy because like, like, like The Last Dance, for instance, is just like generating nonstop basketball content for, the, for that kind of website. Uh, yeah. So it's kind, of, it's kind of funny that it's, it's not even actually been that slow the last couple of weeks. But here we are. Um, So... Obviously, if people have been listening to this, they will feel free to ignore this passage, but uh, Ben and I have done three of these already, sort of player review series kind of uh, podcasts. Uh, The first three are in the books now, covering more than half the roster. We did the bigs first, then uh, part one of the wings last time Ben was on the show. Today's part two of the wings. We'll cover a couple of guys very, very quickly in Vince Carter and Charlie Brown, and then we'll dive into two of the fabled core five, Kevin Herter and DeAndre Hunter on the podcast today. Um, but I mean, I guess as we finish out the wings here, Ben, for people that may, may not have heard the uh, first couple of shows here, how do you feel about this group overall? Because I asked this, it's been sort of a talking point in my own life offline, um, peace group, Slack, all these kind of places about, you know, just kind of the reality that, yeah, the Hawks actually have, you know, they have their three core wings, but they probably are going to add one or two in the future, whether it be free agency, draft, or trade. So it's kind of this weird spot where they seem fine on the wing, but also they don't have a ton of depth, and they probably are going to have to add somebody at some point. Yeah, you couldn't hear it because my mic was muted, but I laughed out loud at the uh, fabled Core 5 comment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it it lacks a certain amount of punch, I would say. Like, I think their, their, you know, quote-unquote core wings are all nice players, and I think will continue to be at least nice players for the, you know, the, the bulk of their careers. I'm not sure any of them are going to be stars, um, even like secondary stars that, that you'd want to put around a primary star like Trey Young. Uh, so, you know, I, I think they're all useful. They, they all were useful players at certain points last season, even at their young ages. And I think will continue to be so next season and the year after that. The question is, do three nice players on the wing and, and no really like, good player get you into the playoff mix and I you know maybe the answer is yes if Trey Young is running your offense and you have and you know Clint Capella's good enough on defense to kind of get you there on that side of the ball but I, I do think they need to add someone at some point you know I'm not sure what that looks like probably a, a trade or free agency uh, at this point just because they have fairly high aspirations for next season and I'm not sure a rookie's going to help them all too much in the draft um, but you know, I, I like what I've seen from basically all of them who, who are returning and it's, it's just a question of, do any of them have the upside? Do any of them have, you know, the, the punch and the force and 
the two-way impact that you're really looking for from that position. Yeah, I think you know the best possible version of all three of the young wings would be you know high-end starters are better. But that doesn't necessarily mean stars, like you're saying. I think, you know, most people I think, at least that I hear from that are Hawks fans, would probably circle Reddish as the most likely to, like, reach that star kind of tier. But even then, like, he's going to have to do a lot of things better. We talked about Cam a lot on the last podcast. So I don't want to go back into that now. But it's just an interesting primer, and it's been kicking around, uh, especially during these kind of slow times. People are starting to think about the roster in deep ways and looking ahead to the future. And it's uh, sort of been kicking around my mind, just the fact that, you know, they have these wings, but they're probably going to either – Either they'll add somebody or two guys, or they maybe they'll do a consolidation trade at some point in time. There's definitely a way where this group is not going to be together for you know multiple years now. We'll see how that goes, but that's sort of a primer into what we'll get into today as we wrap up the wings. Uh, and in a in a hard left turn, we will talk about one guy who will not be around anymore, and then another guy who probably won't be around anymore. <laughs> um, right, right quickly, let's get, this, get these guys out of the way because I don't I don't want to ignore any part of the roster. So I'm trying to do my due diligence here. And uh, that starts with Vince Carter. Now, Vince is not really a wing, but he played. He was a wing for the majority of his career, and he did play some wing this year. And we had a sort of an opening on this particular show to sort of shoehorn Vince into the mix here. So I'm not going to do a ton on Vince Carter because he's going to be retiring. He probably already is retired at this moment. We don't, we don't know that to be uh, sure for 100% as the Hawks could still play some more games. But uh, Vince's retirement tour is uh, was this season. He was not very good on the court, which is, is painful to talk about because he was, he was much better the previous year. But uh, what do you make of what Vince was able to bring last season? Yeah, I, mean, I think defensively, he was he was probably one of the more helpful players on the roster. That's not saying a ton because of the defensive talent on this team. Uh, you know, offensively, there were moments like you'd see him hit a post fadeaway or, you know, hit a sidestep three or something that was really exciting or maybe go, you know, hit four shots in rapid succession um, in an away game. I remember him doing that a few times this season. But outside of that, the the shooting was not there consistently. Uh, I mean, it's even worse than you, at least than I thought. You know, like the whole season I was kind of, in my mind, I would always, I thought of Vince as kind of a, you know, mid to low 30s three-point shooter. And the last shot of his career, the one he hit against the Knicks, actually took him above the 30% mark. So he was hovering in the high 20s for most of the season, which you know, just didn't do the Hawks very many favors on offense. And it's it, it's not fair to pin an entire offense's struggles on Vince Carter because he he isn't the, the centerpiece of the, the team. And he was asked to do a lot more creation and, and ball handling and shot creation and scoring and all that than he probably should have been because the Hawks just didn't have a, a backup point guard for so much of the year. So, yeah, like you said, it, it wasn't good. Uh, he, he wasn't a... A positive player this season which is kind of a shame because he was I think a positive locker room presence he was certainly fun to be around as a media member you know was was very interactive with with all of us and um, a, a good dude by all accounts but you know it's it's in a lot of ways it's not really fair to expect a 43 year old to be a, a positive NBA contributor so really for him to be on an NBA roster at this point was was impressive unto itself and you know for a team like the Hawks I'm not sure it really matters whether he was good or bad. I think it's more just, you know, he had he had one last opportunity, one last ride here. Uh, the fans knew that. The fans cer- certainly showed their appreciation. Uh, and I think Vince really enjoyed it. And I think for him, that's kind of all he was looking to get out of this. I, I, I you know, It seems like whether he was good, bad, neutral on the court was almost secondary to just sort of enjoying the game of basketball for one final season. And that's not to say that he didn't want to win, that he didn't want to help the team. Um, but I, I think really 
he and the rest of the team just just sort of enjoyed having having the opportunity to know that this was the end and kind of round out his career the way he wanted to. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, it was his career his career low in total minutes. He played obviously a much smaller role this year. Um, granted, he was supposed to play a smaller role two years ago, and then he ended up playing a lot more than he was supposed to play. Uh, part of that was injuries to guys in front of him like John Collins. Um, and part of that was just the lack of better options and the fact that Vince actually shot the ball extremely well in his first year with the Hawks. But then this year, as you alluded to, it just kind of fell off. And that was his primary value offensively was his three point shooting, and that which just wasn't going in, which kind of made it a little bit tough. Your point about his defense is well taken, though, because you know people think about Vince as this like very limited guy, and that is probably the case at this point in time, given his age. But Vince knows where to be, and I think that was not a coincidence that you would see him on the court late in games when when they actually had to get stops because Lloyd Pierce just trusted Vince Carter. Now, sometimes probably to a fault, in my opinion. Like Vince was out there sometimes where he probably shouldn't have been, but like there is a lot of value to someone who knows where to be. It could tell what guys were to be, and on a young team. That you know, it wasn't all about this defensively. They have some talent issues as well, but a lot of the defensive problems that the Hawks have had in the last two years have been just the fact that they were really young and inexperienced. And Vince can get guys where they're supposed to be, which is it's valuable. Like he's not very good, and at this point in time, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it was not really about that, but uh, it's just worth pointing out that there is uh, some value to that. I wish he was, you know, younger and able to do more. Just kind of combine those things together, but that he would have been available for the minimum for two years. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was he was smart. He played hard. He knew what to do, uh, and he he talked. You know, that's that's kind of that's kind of the bar for being a, a a good defensive player on this team, and he met it. So, you know, he was one of really like two or three or four guys all season, and especially early in the year, like uh, and really especially when Len was injured. But like after Collins got suspended and before Deadman came over, I mean, they just didn't really have many other options than Vince. So he closed a lot of games. Uh, it, that really he he probably shouldn't have, but just even because, at even even at center sometimes by the way yeah exactly was, just because they silly. had no other options and you know good good on him for like being a part of the rotate even even a, a poor rotation but being a part of the rotation and being you know an, an important part of those closing lineups but I think that in itself is is kind of an indictment of where the Hawks were talent wise. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, kind of goes without saying. All right, we can move on from Vince. We uh, we wish him the best in retirement. He'll probably be on TV quite a bit, I would imagine. We'll we'll, we'll be seeing plenty of Vince as someone who got to interview him. I know, I know you did as well. He is not shy about talking, and his next career will be in the media doing something. So uh, listen listen to his podcast as well with a good friend of mine, Annie, Annie Finberg. We love Annie. So shouts to uh, the Winging It podcast with Vince. Um, all right, let's go to Charlie Brown, the exact opposite of Vince Carter, someone who has played in his career 40 minutes in the NBA, 40 total minutes in the NBA. That's Charlie Brown, two-way guy. The Hawks agreed to a deal with Charlie Brown, like, on the night of the draft, like, probably within a couple of hours of the end of the draft. So they obviously wanted him out of the, out of the shoot, with basically the idea being he's, you know, 6'7", and can shoot it. That was kind of the theory around Charlie Brown coming out of college. I, w- I would sort of vouch for that as someone who tried to watch a little bit of him pre-draft. Um, but his jump shot just didn't go in this year. Um, obviously, the NBA minutes don't really matter much at all, but there was a reason why he didn't play a whole lot in Atlanta while, while the other guy in Brandon Goodwin did play quite a bit. Part of that's positional, but part of that's that Charlie was not ready to play. And uh, my big takeaway here was uh, Charlie actually had some pretty interesting counting stats in the G League, although counting stats in the G League are often misleading because everyone posts good stats in the G League, but he shot 27% from three. And, you know, considering that's, that's his number one skill by a wide margin, that's not going to work. Uh, I'm, I will not claim to have watched all of those attempts, 
But uh, I will say this just as a, as a short primer for Charlie Brown. He has to make shots or it's never going to work. Well, I will not claim to have watched any of those attempts. Um, and you, you have... <laughs> I you watched have, a little uh, bit. A little you bit. have more takeaways on Charlie Brown than I do by a factor of infinity uh, because I, I don't have any. And, and I will not... Uh, listen, I, 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 won't, I won't front. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I know much about Charlie Brown's game. Like you said, he played 40 minutes. Uh, that's the only amount of Charlie Brown I've seen uh, in my entire life. And, and uh, <laughs> because of that, I'm, I'm, I will go ahead and admit when I am not an expert on something and I am not an expert on Charlie Brown's game. That's probably for the best. We can move on from Charlie Brown. I have no reason to talk about this necessarily. I don't wish anything uh, ill on Charlie, who I talked to a bunch at Summer League and enjoy talking to. And I did watch him some before the draft because he was on the radar a little bit. Um, and it didn't. I thought it was actually a pretty good investment when the Hawks gave him the two-way, but it, it did not go well in year one. We'll see if they bring him back because they will have the right to bring him back on another two-way in year two. Um, if, they, if they saw anything, we'll see. Um, but I will say this, and you probably can back me up on this if, not, if nothing else. Um, the Hawks didn't seem to prioritize Charlie at any point, even when they were in need of no. bodies, even when they could have played him more or called him up more. They didn't really seem to do that, which is usually not, not, not the best side in the world. Yeah, the, the one thing I guess I can say is Lloyd Pierce really seemed to like his his enthusiasm and his energy yep. on the bench. He he noted that several times, especially he's a, after he's that. a good bench guy, Charlie. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's b- fun. big on the celebrations, you know, big on the you know jumping off the bench and and kind of stirring up team spirit. So he, he's good at that, I suppose. Um, like you, I'm pulling for him. You know, I have nothing nothing against Charlie Brown. Certainly, he seems like a swell dude, but I uh, I, I can't. I can't say with any kind of certainty whether or not it'll work out for him. <laughs> well said, Ben. Okay, we have uh, we've gotten the two guys who were I would say less important out of the way on this podcast. And before we get to DeAndre Hunter and Kevin Herter, it is time to take a quick break. So uh, we'll have uh, we'll hear from the good folks at Postmates. From an early morning breakfast burrito to a full meal in a 12-pack, sometimes you just need to get what you need delivered and have it delivered fast. That's where Postmates comes in. If you're like me, you probably start thinking about what to eat for dinner while you're still eating lunch. I love food, and that's why I love using Postmates. They deliver food from every restaurant I can think, I can think of right to my door. But Postmates does not just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make my life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery too. Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. And that feels particularly important to mention right about now. So no more trips to the store. No more late night fast food runs. Just rely on Postmates. Download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites and get virtually anything you need delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for the first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use and use the code LOCKEDONNBA. That's code LOCKEDONNBA for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for the first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, just Postmate it. All right, Ben. It is time to transition to players that actually matter for the future, and we'll go to DeAndre Hunter first. Um... Hunter is interesting. Um, you know, I, I kind of debated the order. It doesn't really matter uh, on the order of these guys. They're both very important to the future. Obviously, the Hawks are invested in both of these guys, and I kind of just flipped a coin in my mind. So don't don't read any, anything into the order here on uh, which guy's going first. But um, Hunter was, of course, the guy they paid up for considerably in the draft. I promise I will not try to bring up the trade more than right now on this podcast because it's not his fault that the Hawks gave up way too much for him in the draft. Um, I liked him before the draft. I still like him. And uh, I will say this before we dive into his game. It's uh, interesting to point out that he led the entire rookie class in the NBA in minutes by almost 200. He was a comfortable leader in minutes 
in the entire NBA among rookies. Now, that a lot of that is that he didn't get hurt, and a lot of that is that the Hawks were not very good, and he had a huge role st- from start to finish. But that's something. It's not, it's not a small thing that a guy comes in, and even with lack of options, he played a lot. He was durable. He showed up. Um, there was lots of times when Lloyd kind of made fun of him for not being able to play back-to-backs. But uh, other than that, he was he was available and playing. And, uh, you know, there were some minuses for sure. There were some pluses for sure. But uh, I thought it was at least interesting that they were at least willing to give him so much time uh, this early. And I would venture to say, too, that he probably played in in some games where if if the Hawks had more at stake or if they just had more bodies, he probably wouldn't have played. I would guess he probably played through some pain and some minor injuries at certain points. Um, but I mean, he, he, I can't recall a time where he really used that as an excuse. Even, even if people asked him about it, you know, how, how are you feeling? Yada, yada, yada. He would always just kind of say, you know, I feel good enough to play. So I'm going to play, um, which, you know, I guess you like to see that, that attitude from a rookie. Uh, the, the minutes is the point I was going to make too. He was not only first in the rookie class, but second on the Hawks in total minutes by a comfortable margin as well. So I, I think that can only bode well for him and, and his development, just getting, reps on the court and especially early in the year there he was really like a second option for a lot of the the time after john <laughs> collins went down and they were running a lot of middle pick and roll for him trying to set him up going toward the basket get him some open three-point attempts and he was like a focal point of the offense especially when trey young was off the floor so you know whether that will translate to a secondary tertiary offensive role i'm not sure uh, i i think sort of in keeping with a theme that we're seeing in the, in the modern NBA as a whole, I think at the very least, like even if he is a fifth option, he's going to be a fifth option that can put the ball on the deck, make a good decision, uh, maybe run a pick and roll every once in a while as part of your regular offense, attack closeouts. Like he's not going to be, no matter where he fits into the offensive hierarchy, he's not going to be one of those guys who just can't dribble and, and can't pass and can't do anything with the ball. I think at the very least, he's going to be like a capable fifth option who, who kind of gives you more than the typical fifth option would and you know maybe he's a fourth option maybe he's a third option i'm not sure but uh, i don't think he's ever going to be one of these just you know offensive offensive negatives where he's just he's limited to only shooting and only finishing right off the catch i think he can do a little bit more of that already and i think he'll continue to to do that so i, I was encouraged by him i frankly my, my opinion of him hasn't really changed much from where it was at the start of the year you know i expected him to come in and be solid on defense and, and guard a lot of positions pretty well. I, I'm maybe a little lower on his defense than I was at the start, but not, excuse me, not a ton. Uh, I, I still think he's going to be a solid multi, multi-positional defender. Offensively, I'm, I'm maybe a little higher on his offense than I initially was, but again, not by a ton. I think, like I said, he's going to be a guy who can do a lot of different things, maybe never does any one thing well, but is is not going to take much off the table on offense. So really, I, I think he's, he's kind of right along uh, with the trajectory that, most people I think saw for him at the start of the season, which is solid, versatile three and D player who, who, like I said, doesn't take much off the table, allows you to, to fit into a lot of different lineups, allows you to, to kind of gives you a lot of different looks and things like that. And I, I, I didn't see much this season that would dissuade me from that opinion. I tend to agree on his offense. I think um, I might've been guilty of as part of this as well, but I think people, you know, people hear three and D and they assume that, that's all they're going to do on offense. And Hunter, you know, a lot of his value offensively came this year just being an, a league average three-point shooter, and he got up a pretty pretty decent amount of him, shot, shot okay on those. Um, and that was that was certainly valuable in some ways. But he is someone who is not a super creative player offensively by any means. He kind of is 
um, fundamentally sound in a way that makes him seem robotic on both ends of the floor. Um, but offensively, I think there is a part of his game that's almost underrated in that you kind of talked, you kind of touched on it as well, but like he can get downhill and drive. He's comfortable with the ball in his hand. He's not going to be this huge initiator, but he is someone who can attack mismatches, attack closeouts and do things that are capable of the ball. He can dribble it. He's not like, a, again, a huge playmaker, but you know, he was a league average passer this year, I would say for at least for his position. He landed about, about right there on uh, assist rate kind of, on those kind of metrics. His passing is not going to be dynamic, but he's, you know, he can make a solid decision. And offensively, like, his shooting is going to be what gets the most attention. And, again, he shot okay on threes. He shot 45% on twos, which is a little bit a little bit um, worrisome. He shot um, only 30% of his shots this, e- this season were at the rim, which is probably less than you would want for someone who, of his ilk. And, you know, he was not very good at the rim either. Um, that's kind of a concern for me anyway. And this is going to be a theme going into Kevin Herter as well, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, Talk about the next frontier for Hunter. Obviously, you want to see him improve a little bit more as a three-point shooter, and he's going to have to be better and more physical and finishing around the rim. There were lots of times when Reddish got attention for his bad finishing early in the year, and that was definitely true, but Hunter had some questionable finishing throughout as well. It didn't always look as rough, but the numbers don't really paint the best picture of him around the rim, and he got to the line a decent amount, but that's something he can definitely improve on as well. So um, just offensively, I, I think he is capable and I think he was probably underrated by some people on that end of the floor because of Virginia and kind of the way that, that all came about. But um, it's kind of this weird hybrid area where, you know, we'll talk about this later, but the the, the three versus four thing about his position also comes into play. But he is someone who could do a, who could do a little bit of everything, even if he's not going to be this dynamic option. I just wish he uh, would take another step forward, which we'll see if he does. I think there's plenty of room to be excited about his offense, even if not going to be like a dynamic star level offensive player. Yeah, you mentioned the finishing at the rim, only 55%. Uh, that's not great. And and a big reason for that is because he can't use his left hand at all. No. Um, he, he he dribbling, finishing, shooting, I mean, everything is, is right-handed. It, it, you know, if you notice, like, every pick and roll he ran basically the entire season started on the left wing and got him going toward the middle with his right hand where he could just kind of drive in a straight line toward the rim. And any time he had to finish in traffic or or – finish on the left side of the basket or, or anything like that, where it was the smarter play to finish with his left hand. He just couldn't do it. Uh, and that's something that, that develops. That's something he can work on. That's something he does work on you know, before games and after practices and things like that. But it, it's a little bit of a different thing to actually finish at game speed with your offhand against NBA competition, you know, in, in sort of the heat of the moment. And right now he's, he's a completely right hand dominant player. I'm not sure he'll ever be like a strong left-handed finisher, left-handed driver, but I, I think he'll get to the point where he's versatile enough with that. You know, he can make plays moving to either direction. He can he can at least like, you know, toss a, a floater off the glass with his left hand, or maybe hook it around a rim protector if he you know if he has a confrontation at the rim or something like that. The passing is it was upon further review, it, it never really jumped out to me during the season, mm-hmm. but as I went back and watched more film after the season. I was actually more encouraged by his passing than I than I thought I'd be. I, I think he's a really good. He's kind of the ultimate, you know, two dribbles and a good decision type of guy. Where he's he's really good at, at driving kick passes. I mean, he he almost always makes the right decision. I shouldn't say almost always, but he often makes the right decision, driving into traffic and kicking out to the open man. Especially, you know, if it's just one dribble to the strong side and then kick to the strong side corner. He's pretty good at hitting that pass. And that's a simple pass, but it's also an important one. That, are not, that not a lot of 
rookies always see. And so to, for him to consistently hit that pass, I thought was encouraging. He's really good at making that that one more pass when the ball gets kicked out to him, either in the corner or on the wing, and the defense closes out on him. He's really good at just catching it and immediately swinging it to that next guy, uh, usually from the wing to the corner, but often in the opposite scenario as well, and just just catch and, and swing to, into an open three before the defense can close out. He's really good at that pass. I suspect that's probably a product of playing at Virginia and being drilled in that system for a long time. Uh, the, the one thing in his his sort of shot profile that stands out is he was actually a pretty good long mid-range shooter, and he looked comfortable most of the time sort of stepping into that 18-foot, 20-foot range and, and hitting shots off the dribble there. So I wonder if he works that into kind of a you know, a Chris Middleton type of mid-post game where he can use his size against smaller defenders and get to his spots. That's never going to be the, you know, the, the linchpin of your offense. But, you know, if he's out there running with a, a second unit or something or you're asking him to create at the end of the clock, I think that could be maybe a, a part of his game that blossoms a little bit. And aside from that, it's just, about, it's just about finishing more efficiently at the rim. We saw times where he was really assertive and he got up for some big dunks, sometimes on defenders and other times where he just looked really reticent about finishing at the rim, and it's kind of finding the the former uh, type of mentality more often and, and improving his craft and his strength. He and Reddish both, are, I think, are guys that once they add muscle to their frame and strengthen their core, they're going to do a lot better job absorbing contact at the basket and finishing through and around big guys. Because last season, both of them, whenever they went up against a Brooke Lopez, you know, against a Rudy Gobert, against kind of these these burly and or long rim protectors, they just didn't have the center of gravity to be able to sustain that contact and finish through it. Uh, and, and Hunter especially has the, the kind of frame and I think can add the, the strength necessary uh, to be pretty good at that. He's not an elite athlete, which I think will hold him back as a finisher. And, and frankly, neither is Reddish um, since we're comparing the two. But I, I think I think Hunter at the very least will have the type of game where he can you know, use his body to kind of create space, nudge people out of the way, use pump fakes and things like that and finish through contact. Um, and then, like I mentioned, the post game, I could see him extending that from, you know, five to 18 feet and using that, at, excuse me, as kind of a, a bailout weapon at certain moments of the shot clock. Hunter is definitely someone who enjoys the mid-range, probably too much, but at the same time, it's also a good weapon of his. You saw that in college as well. He is comfortable there. Um, we'll see how much they let him utilize that because, you know, percentage-wise, not always the greatest shot in the world, but it also does bring value at times when you when that's the shot you can get, and he's a pretty good shooter when you can get that shot, so there's pluses and minuses to that. I think he's an, actually a pretty okay vertical athlete. He's not great horizontally. like He's not this most, he's not this super explosive guy, but as you said, when he, when, he's, when he sort of has time to load up, it looks pretty good. He's kind of a sneaky athlete that way because he is so almost robotic at times. Um, you might not think he's this incredible athlete because he's not an incredible athlete, but he's a, he's a decent one um, getting up to dunk it in a little bit and sort of attack the rim, but more aggressive, more aggression from him would be good. Um, all of that stuff that we just talked about. And three-point shooting, I think it's going to be fine. You know, he got up seven per 100 possessions this year. That's a pretty acceptable number for someone who's playing the three and the four um, that isn't going to be a primary option. I think he's going to shoot. Um, and you know, I think it's encouraging that he came into the league from college and shot 35.5% on pretty big volume as a rookie. Now, it's one season, and I never want to make too much of one season for anyone, good or bad, as a shooter. But if that's a baseline for him... That's pretty good. Like I think it's. I think there's probably some room to grow from there. If I was guessing where he's going to settle, sort of as a career shooter, it would probably be somewhere in the 36, 37 range. And given what he is going to be able to do, that's perfectly fine. Is he going to be an elite shooter? Probably not. But I think him already being an acceptable shooter, like for instance, as a rookie, 52 percent true shooting is not great. 
But as a rookie, that is actually pretty solid, and I think better than most people would expect a rookie wing to post. Again, not fantastic, and if you in, in year three, year four, if that number's still the same, you don't love that. But uh, there are some good signs about his shooting as well. So I think overall, um, I, I think Hunter's offensive foibles are a little bit overblown. I, I, I sort of saw this coming as well. When, when he was drafted with a top five pick, I try to tell people kind of coming into the season, like, look, I know he's a top five pick, but don't think top five pick when you watch him because offensively it's not going to look like that. And I think we kind of saw that, but I'm really not worried about his offense much at all. I think he's kind of what you thought he was going to be, especially if you watched him in college. I'm kind of encouraged about his offense overall. We'll go to the defense in a second, but I feel like that's, you know, I'm not worried about his offense. Is that is that reasonable? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what does it matter if DeAndre Hunter can't, you know, hit every pass out of the pick and roll when you have Trey Young on your team, you know? <laughs> Like, he's a fine oh, passer. It's not, he's not, he's not exactly. like great at it, but he, he's okay. He, he does, right. he, he you don't okay. need him to be a, a primary initiator. You don't need him to be hitting step-back threes and, and you know taking guys off the bounce in isolation when you have maybe one of the eight best offensive weapons in the entire NBA on your team. And, and not to mention you know Kevin Herter, who could, who could grow into, I think, a solid all-around offensive player. Cam Reddish, who could grow into a solid all, all-around offensive player. And probably an influx of talent coming from from somewhere else at some point as well so I don't think Hunter's ever going to play the role where you're going to be focusing on his offensive shortcomings unless he doesn't shoot the ball well like you know it, there's a reason we don't you know wonder why Dorian Finney-Smith doesn't create more with the ball in his hands and that, that's not to say that Hunter will be Dorian Finney-Smith but those types of players you just don't need them to be offensive focal points and maybe the Hawks will need Hunter to do that like right now it, if they don't add it, I mean, they will add people, but just assume they don't add anyone and this is their core moving forward, then he probably has to play a, a fairly And then maybe you've run into some issues. Then maybe you critique a little bit more specifically because he's being held to a, a higher standard and playing a larger role. But I think in, in the capacity that the Hawks project him uh, and, and the function they, they project him to, to fill, I, I really don't think that his, his specific offensive limitations are going to be all that damaging because they're almost never going to be used and, and therefore never really exploited. I agree. And I, I think he is a uh, sneaky, better than people realize guy at attacking closeouts and mismatches and kind of just doing little things. And the fact that he was able to, as a rookie, put up some decent offensive numbers overall, like I don't, I'm not points per game guy. I think people probably, people probably realize that at this point that I'm not a huge points per game guy, but he averaged four points a game as a rookie. Like, that's not nothing. Like I think if, if you just read the way that he was discussed, you'd think he was a complete zero on offense. And he's just he's not. I think he's just fine on the end of the floor. He's he's good if he can catch the ball on the move or in open space with some sort of advantage already created. I think he's he's going to be really good. Like he's a solid cutter. Uh, he's he's pretty good on open catch and shoots. Just kind of those spot up threes, and you know in transition, whatever the the situation is, attacking closeouts like you mentioned. In those situations, I think he's he's already pretty solid and he's going to be even better. And again, Trey Young is the type of player who is going to get him opportunities in those situations. And so, if that's where most of if that's where eighty percent of his offense comes from, then if the other twenty percent isn't ideal, if it's if it's slightly less efficient than you'd want it to be, I think he can live with that. Given how how well I think he's going to play the rest of of that role offensively, and I think the value he's going to add eventually on defense. Agreed. And let's move, let's move to defense now. Um, 
I will say I agree with your overall point from earlier about my opinion not changing a whole lot on Hunter, and I liked Hunter coming in. Um, but if there's a side of the court that um, has, I would say, close observers worried a little bit more than the other, it's probably defense, which is kind of funny because he was supposed to be this defense-first prospect. I think he still probably is. At the same time, his defense was not as good as some people thought it might be coming into the season. Um, and rookies are generally bad on defense. I always want to point that out. Um, I know Hunter was an older rookie, but he's still a rookie. And by the way, this is a point I've made before, but I'll say it again now. You know, Coming from Virginia to the NBA is uh, a pretty stark uh, defensive change from what you're actually asked to do. Virginia plays yeah. a very college basketball defensive style, and it works awesome. But it's this pack line defense. Um and I know DeAndre Hunter was an old rookie, but just because you're an old rookie does not necessarily mean that you're ready to play. And I can't tell you how big of a change it, it, that it is to go from Virginia to the NBA in terms of defense. Which I'm yeah, and as, as someone who went to Indiana, I am obligated to note that it does not always work awesome. Uh, there are cases <laughs> where it doesn't work so well. It works. It works for, for Virginia very, very well. Yes, um, yes, and and I had several level. people remind me of that uh, after they won the national championship. Which yeah, even this year, by the way, yeah, I mean Virginia, the, t- the the team that had that Hunter was on that w- that won the title. I was at, I was at those games uh, in Minneapolis. That was an awesome two way team. They were actually awesome on offense. They just, they just played really yeah. slow. Um, this year, Virginia was actually the team that everyone thought they always were, and they were all absolutely awful on offense. But anyway, um, defensively, I just want to point that out. Like I know Hunter is kind of old. We talked about that a lot pre draft. It'll come up now, but uh, he's still a rookie, and that's at least part of this. But there are some concerns defensively for me. Um, and by the way, this is like concerns on the prism of him being a really, really good defender. I don't worry about him being a passable defender at all. I think that's going to happen almost certainly. Um, the question is how good he can be. And when you have kind of troublingly bad block and steal rates, which was the same kind of worry at Virginia, part of the system, but it didn't really translate this year as well. And he was not great on the ball at at all times. Um, you know, the off-ball stuff is a little bit more worrisome to me. I think he'll be fine on the ball. But what do you make of him defensively? Because, you know, I was super high on Cam Reddish's defense coming into the NBA. But if you told me that Reddish was going to be, you know, solidly better than Hunter as a rookie, I would have been surprised by that. And Reddish was solidly better than Hunter as a rookie defensively. I agree with that. The biggest thing that jumped out to me about Hunter is that he does not get over screens well on or off the ball. Uh, he struggled, I thought, to navigate pin downs, especially, you know, coming from the corner um, and, and moving up toward the middle of the floor, didn't didn't get around those very well. Ball screens, you know, there were times he could get over the top of a ball screen, but he got hung up on those um, more often than you'd like to see. That stuff, I think, will improve eventually with time, but I don't know that he'll ever be elite at that. And if you're asking him to be your your primary on, maybe you're not. Maybe you're asking Cam Reddish to be your primary on ball stopper. But if you're relying on Hunter to be that type of player, and you know, your second um, sort of go-to perimeter defender you probably want him to be a little bit better than that getting over screens the activity i think the the block and steal rates are probably always going to sell him short a little bit but it is a little troubling to see that he just wasn't very active as a defender this season and and the coaching staff was constantly trying to bring that side out of him they were constantly trying to get him to get in the passing lanes more often um you know show more more active help at the rim block more shots pursue the ball more than he did. And I think it's just sort of his natural tendency to want to be in the right place and make the solid play and not get out of position. Again, maybe a a product of of spending three years in the Virginia system. But I think eventually he's going to have to find a little bit more aggression on that side of the ball. And that's a hard thing to do where you you don't want to be out of position. You don't want to take risks you don't need to. So you can understand why he'd want to just stay in position, you know, not, not take any gambles that he doesn't need to. 
but I, I think working toward a better balance there would would behoove him. Um, and then I, I thought on the ball, like in isolation and, and post and, and stuff like that, just sort of these one-on-one situations, he was, I thought he was fine. I, th- I think the, the yeah. one thing that stands out is that, that game in Atlanta against the Rockets where he guarded James Harden, I thought really well on the ball. Um, especially compared to the first time the Hawks played the Rockets. I was going to say, the, the, fir- the first time he was absolutely lost, it was it was brutal. But no, yeah. I, to, to be fair, everyone was lost. But uh, that was that was the, I think that was probably the only time this season when DeAndre Hunter looked like he didn't even want to be on the court. Like he was, right. he looked like he was just, I mean, I, I don't blame him either. Is it, went, it went very poorly for everyone. But uh, I can't forget that image of just how bad that was for everyone. But he was very bad that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he did. I would agree with that. He did not look like he wanted to be there. And and frankly, who among us has not felt that way in some Agreed. basketball game or another? Um, so yeah, I think overall, he, like I said, his defense is is not as good as I would have hoped. But like you said, all rookies are, at least most rookies are, are bad on defense. Um, and and I, I didn't think he was bad by any means. I just thought no. he wasn't great. He was probably slightly below league average for the entire league, which for a rookie is is fine. And it, I think it's just a question of, it, like you said, it's not going to be, okay, he's a defensive liability or like we can't have him on the floor. Or he can't do this. He can't do that. It's we need him to be. And, and when I say we, I mean the Hawks, not myself as a Hawks fan, just to make that, that clear. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it's, it's like we need him to be our top or second sort of perimeter stopper. And, and can he be good enough in that role? And the question to that, I'm I'm not so sure. I think that's, that's where the sort the, the sense of worry would come from. It is like, can he be an elite, like maybe sub all defense level of defender? Um, and, and the answer might be yes, but I, I don't think we know uh, one way or the other yet. And I would say the evidence just after one season points to maybe him not quite getting there, even though I, I do think he'll be a solid, well above average defender for most of his career. It's just, I'm not sure he profiles as that, that guy that you need on the wing next to, to someone like Trey Young to really round out your perimeter defense. And the other thing, too, is if, if you're saying he's going to play the four for a lot of the time in, in those small lineups that actually defended pretty well this season, he is going to need to be a little bit more of a rim protector. He is going to need to be a little bit more active because, you know, you, they, like I said, the, the, the rim protection, you have less of it on the floor. And so you're going to need your four to contribute a little bit more in that capacity. And, and Hunter right now is not good enough on defense to to play the four full time at that position unless he has just a really awesome defensive five next to him. So maybe that's even the, the bigger area of concern is is like can we get away with playing him at small ball four for you know 15, 20 minutes a game or do do we have to keep him at the three? And that changes kind of the way you're you configure the lineups around him. I think he will end up playing both. That's been a it's been a talking point, and it will it will definitely continue to be one with Hunter. Um, I think you know this is not like a satisfying answer to a lot of fans who want to just plug in a starting lineup and roll with it. But I think he's going to play both, and that's perfectly fine. You have a guy who's six eight with a seven two wingspan, who's going to get bigger and stronger as he gets older. Um, I think he can definitely do both. I think he'll need to rebound better at the four. Um, at the three, his rebounding is fine, but at, at the four, he'll, he'll probably need to do a little bit more than that, as well as rear protection, like you mentioned. But I think there's a lot of utility in having someone of that size and that physical profile who can kind of do both things. And as he learns to sort of play off the ball more, make more active decisions, etc., I think that will definitely come. Um, as far as the like being your ace one-on-one like lockdown guy, I think the Hawks have this very nice... Um, I would say alternative 
situation where they have Reddish to kind of guard smaller players and Hunter to guard bigger players. And I think the Hawks lean into that a little bit. I think when you saw, you know, when they had to find a matchup for someone who was like a shooting guard size player or even point guard size player, they would use Reddish on that guy. But I think long term, if you're going to pick a guy on this roster that you that you want to guard like Kawhi or LeBron, it probably is going to be Hunter just because of physical size. So it's okay to have two of those guys. They, they are very different players. Reddish is better off the ball right now for sure than Hunter is. But it's just one of those things where, you know, he may not be OG Ananobi defensively, but that's okay. I mean, you wish he was going to be that, and there's still time for him to maybe get there. But even if he's not that, the versatility that he provides, it's just really kind of nice for basically everyone on the whole roster, other than Trey Young and Clint Capella, is a multi is a multi position player. It's really good and underrated, and it'll be something that I, that I will keep talking about, especially when they add more talent at whatever position that they, that they add in the draft or free agency. Is that it's not a bad thing that you have a bunch of guys who can play multiple positions, and they that might tweak your lineups and stuff like that. But when Hunter can be playing the three next to Collins at the four, or go to that you know that core five lineup with him at the four and Collins at the five that worked so well this year. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And I think people want to like pencil him into one spot, and I wouldn't want that. I think I want you want Reddish to play the two and the three. You want Hunter to play the three and the four. You want Collins to play the four and the five. That just gives you options, and they can all kind of do that. Yeah, I, versatility. I think the, the the thing we've learned over the last five years is that versatility is is almost always a good thing to have in the NBA. So the more, and especially on this team with with Trey Young not being a super versatile defensive player, I would say. Yes, you, you you need to have versatile guys around him. You need to have someone who who can guard the two on a lot of nights, but also slide to the one and guard point guards that Trey Young can't. You, know, you need that guy in your team, and then you know as a result of that, you need the guy behind him who can slide up and guard the two, or you know defend the three, or guard those bigger wings. Be, Trey Young sort of forces you to have to rejigger the matchups, or I should say, is going to force you to do that moving forward on a lot of nights. And so you need to have the personnel that's able to adapt to that and slide into different kinds of matchups to cover up for that specific defensive weakness. Like it has these cascading effects down the rest of the roster. Uh, if you don't have a point guard who can defend his position at the point of attack and that's okay. You know, the Hawks drafted Trey knowing that, and, and he certainly gives them enough on offense to compensate, but Atlanta's smart to sort of surround him with defenders like Reddish and defenders like Hunter, even Herder to some degree, who can slide across multiple positions, who have the strength, who have the length, who have the quickness to guard multiple spots. You mentioned the rebounding. I, I will note that his rebounding ticked up significantly over the second half of the season, Hunter's did, and I think that bodes well. That might be just a product of him playing the four more often, and and if it is, maybe you say he'd, he'd need to rebound even better because you know he he posted solid rebounding numbers for a three, I thought. But like you said, for a power forward, someone who's going to play that that position maybe more frequently next season, we'll see. Uh, you would like to see him kind of closer to that six, seven, eight range. And, and really, it's not even about the individual rebounding numbers, but the Hawks just didn't rebound super well with him on the floor. And obviously, there are many factors that go into that. You know, Damian Jones being one of them, Trey Young being one of them, uh, just the, the Hawks' general lack of, of rebounding uh, on the roster. But I think he's a guy that you could look to as, as maybe someone who could help shore up that that specific category. And, and I think that's something he knows. I think that's something the coaching staff has communicated to him and maybe something he can make a point of emphasis next season. For sure. And I, I do think that year two will be big for DeAndre Hunter. It's big for 
you know, virtually every prospect, but it's definitely going to be interesting to see how he adapts to year two in the NBA and his role and how all things are going to work, you know, on ball, off ball, defensively and offensively, how aggressive he's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. I think it'll be a big year for him. Uh, any final thoughts on the before we go to Kevin Herter? Yeah, I'm fascinated. Like you said, the, the year two jump, you know, what kind of jump does he take? And I don't even know that it needs to be a statistical one, but it's more just what does he look like guarding LeBron a, a third and fourth time around? What does he look like guarding James Harden for a third and fourth time? What does he look like guarding Kawhi Leonard for the first time? You know, because because they didn't share the court at all this season in the two games that the Hawks and Clippers played. So it's it's those elite wings. That's that's who the Hawks need him to guard. That's who he needs to be. He needs to be the not necessarily a stopper, but just a guy who can contain the biggest, strongest elite wings in the NBA. And and that's going to be the big test for him next season. You know, they were not shy about giving him those assignments this year, partly out of necessity and partly I think they just wanted to to give him that challenge and and. I think he knows that's going to be his role, and and he and Reddish are going to have this really interesting balance uh, on the wing defensively. But I think certainly at this point, it's it's Hunter who's going to take on those those big, supersized sort of point forward type of wings. And so I'm really curious just to see what he looks like in those matchups next season. I look forward to seeing how he develops. Um, I think you know again, like I said before, because of his age, people thought he was going to be this finished product when he arrived, which I think was kind of silly, and I probably get guilty of that as well. But uh, I think a big jump will come um, for him and Reddish, and you know, all the rookies are probably going to get better in year two. But I think he is uh, set up to be uh, better next year, so we'll see how that all goes. All right, we'll pivot to Kevin Herter now. Uh, Herter, of course, just finished his second season in the league, but uh, funny. He's still very young. He'll be actually he's still 21 years old. He's younger than Bruno Fernando. He's younger than DeAndre Hunter, uh, same age as Trey Young. Um, and I think Herter is like, you know, kind of gets not not forgotten, but I think you know because he's a year ahead of Reddish and Hunter, you think he's this like super, you know, not maybe not super old guy, but older guy. He's really not. He's very young. Um, but a kind of an interesting year for Herter. He got better basically across the board statistically, but at the same time. Uh, and by the way, when I say that, I'm referencing you know rebounding, assist rate, turnover rate going down, usage rate going up, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, um, his production level, you know, maybe didn't fill out in the way that some people thought it might in certain areas. And we'll talk about all of that now. So you know, broadly, what'd you make of Herder's second season, which had some injuries and had sort of a slow start after a knee issue early on? But what'd you make of the uh, sort of the whole arc there? Yeah, I'm a fan of his game just just in general. I think he does a lot of of things at at a not a high level right now, but you can tell he's the kind of player that that could eventually be one of those sort of high level all around players, you know, a jack of all trades type who who ties together different components of your offense by being able to do all of them himself. So I, I like that element of his game, especially playmaking. I think he's a a solid passer, uh, probably an underrated one at this point because. He plays next to one of the best passers in the NBA. He doesn't get a, a lot of opportunity to, to really let his playmaking shine. But I think we saw both when Trey was was off the floor and when he would, would miss games or you know the rare moments where they kind of run the offense through Herder with Trey on the floor. Uh, you saw some really nice feel, some really nice vision from Herder at, at various moments this season. The injuries kind of uh, you know put an asterisk next to the entire season in a lot of ways because he came into the year banged up. That affected the first, you know, basically his entire season up until he got re-injured against Denver. That cost him 11 games. And then I, I think it took him a while to really come back from that. And then he starts to get going for about a month and then the season gets canceled. So there, there really was no sense of consistency for him, I don't think. He, he never really had more than, 
three week, two, three weeks, maybe a month of, of solid, both solid opportunity and solid production at any point this season. And that's really tough. Um, and, and that's, it's hard both for the player and, and for us to really get a meaningful sample size and, and make any sort of evaluation. So I think, you know, take what you will from the, the stats from his second year, but he's a guy in particular where I would go more off of just what did it look like? You know, what was, did he look okay? Did he look comfortable? Uh, did he have the, the kind of pop you would hope to see? And obviously you want the numbers to be there and, and some of them can tell you valuable information, but it is hard to get a read on a player like that. Uh, the, the two big things for, for me that he can work on and improve going into next season, and, and one of them is kind of two things in one. Uh, the first is, is just taking more threes. You know, I think he's a guy that, that could really bomb like eight, nine, ten threes a game because he's a, an accurate shooter. I think his mechanics are, are conducive to shooting both off the dribble and from well beyond the arc. I think he has that kind of range, and I think he can be that kind of shooter who maybe the percentage doesn't get to 40%, but if he's taking nine threes a game and shooting 38%, then he's providing more value for, for your offense, and he's, he's you know, drawing more defensive attention, he has more gravity, things like that. And the second thing, which is really two things in one, is getting to the rim and getting to the foul line. His, his, I think most people who have really you know, dug into the numbers on the Hawks know that his, his percentage of shots taken at the rim was very low this season. His free throw rate was even lower and, you know, that's two areas for easy points that he just doesn't have in his game right now. And that's a big reason why you see his true shooting percentage under, I think, 54%, despite the fact that he's a really good three-point shooter, despite the fact that he's got a pretty decent floater, that he's a, you know, a fairly accurate from all areas of the floor except for the paint. And, and just, I think, his, his complete aversion to contact and, and to physicality around the rim cost him some points. It cost the Hawks points. And, and I think that's an area where, He's just going to need to be more assertive, more aggressive. And you can understand coming off a knee injury and then ultimately a, a shoulder injury, why he would avoid contact the way he did this season. But for him to really be like an efficient starting level two guard, he's going to he's going to need to be more aggressive and get more of his shots around the, the rim. And, and he's a good free throw shooter, too. And that's that's an area where it's like the CJ McCollum effect where the guy's a really good free throw shooter, but he never gets to the foul line. And so. You know, it's almost a waste of a skill if you're if you're good at something and you don't even get to use it. So those are kind of the areas I would look at for him to improve. And and he's been asked about it, and Lloyd Pierce has been asked about it, and it's it's kind of a, you know, a topic of discussion in the media as well. And I think it's something he's aware of as well. So uh, that that's something I would look for him to to work on. But other than that, like I said, I think he's a really solid all around player who who does a lot of things really really well. It's really just kind of the finer points and these nuances of his game that he can tighten up. Ben, I, I wish you could see my notes, which you, you you do not have access to. We do not talk about what we're going to talk about other than the players. I probably hit all of them. I spoke for a really long time just now. <laughs> no, but it, it was it's just funny because uh, I have I have two things bolded on my notes with Kevin Herter, and it is free throw rate and and shooting from three. So, which is what you talked about. So the free throw rate stuff is well documented. He's got to get to the line. That's like it's not even it's not even a luxury. He just has to be better at that. He's not. You know, we'll talk about this more in three-point shooting in a second, but he's not Kyle Korver in that way where he didn't like have the ability really to go to the rim. Kevin Hurd can get to the rim. He can do it. He has much more off the dribble game and creativity and that kind of stuff. He's not a pure, you know, just a guy who's only going to catch and shoot and shoot threes. He can obviously yeah. do that, but he's a he's a much more well-rounded guy going to the rim. 
but he is it, it's, it's not it's not it's not aggressive it's not forceful he uh he's too good of an athlete to get just kind of bumped off his spots the way that he does he because he is a good athlete he's just skinny he's not strong um but he's gonna have to get to the line more and finish better and those kind of like like you said they go they sort of go hand in hand but the free throw shooting just get to the line like for instance he he attempted 1.1 free throws per game this season 1.7 per hundred possessions that is comically low for someone who has the ball in his head as much as as much as Herder does um you know there's unending stats on this he just has to be able to do that a little bit better and he only shot 45 percent on twos and that's because of how bad he was at the rim so it's it's these things that kind of go hand in hand and again like there are worse things in the world than Kevin Herter just becoming a bomber. That's all he kind of does. Like you said, like I think he should be taking 10 threes a game. And right now it was six, it was six this year, which is still a lot, but it's not as much as he should be taking. But if he can kind of do both, which I think he is capable of doing, you become this super, I would say super interesting offensive weapon. And he has the talent to do that because like you said, his passing is, I think his most underrated skill he has a 17% assist rate this year. That was very, very good, especially for talking about a wing. He has very good passing numbers. His, his vision is really good. His ball handling is pretty solid. He's never going to be a primary ball handler, like this guy who's going to like explode past people. But he does have a little bit of wiggle to him. He's a good athlete. It's just kind of frustrating that it hasn't come together all the way yet. I have this written down, too. Like, If he doesn't, ultimately, even if he does, but especially if he doesn't get the uh, stuff around the rim, he needs to be a much better off-ball mover for his skill set. Like I, I joked about this. Some people have, I think Tower Jones yeah. has as well on, on Twitter, but just have Kevin Herter go to Kyle Corver school off the ball and just watch how guys like that move off the ball. He's not a natural at that necessarily, which is kind of funny because that's what he was built as, which is always kind of silly. But I think he's going to have to get better at moving off the ball ultimately, especially if he stays in Atlanta, because he's never going to be a primary on the ball guy here with Trey Young. So, you know, if, if you assume Trey is on the team, which he's going to be, and you assume Herter is going to be on the team, his best role might just be becoming this like super interesting fly around screens, you know, always super active player. And he's not necessarily been that so far. So I wonder how much of that will be drilled in him as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, he's not Kyle Korver, JJ Redick, Wayne Ellington, you know, even Clay Thompson. Like he, he has much more off the bounce capability than those guys. I think that's an underrated part of his game. You mentioned the athleticism. He's a, a, a solid vertical athlete. He can get up for some dunks, mostly in transition because like we said he doesn't really look to do that in the half court in traffic but uh, he's a good athlete and a good ball handler and a good playmaker and I think that's kind of what gets overlooked with him um, but yeah I mean part of it is on Lloyd Pierce and Trey Young to say you know hey let's let's involve Kevin let's bring him off screens let's let's run some staggered pin downs for him to get him some looks and part of it's on Herder to say like listen even if the play's not called for me I'm gonna I'm gonna move I'm gonna cut I'm gonna be smart about my movement and learn how to do that there, there's a, it, it's a tough balance to find where you want to put the ball in Trey's hands. You, you want to run the show through him because that's a really profitable way to run offense. Yep. But at the, uh, you know, on the other hand, you can't, that can't be the only thing that happens in your offense because then you become stagnant and other guys aren't feeling the ball. Other guys aren't feeling involved. And you know, it, it's, you're kind of a one trick pony as a team. And so Herder to me is, is maybe the biggest way they can incorporate another layer into the offense just by moving him around without the ball and then letting him kind of make plays in space and kind of fill in the gaps of your offense as a playmaker. Because, because like we said, he's, he's a really solid playmaker. Uh, let, let him do a little bit more of that unleash him a little bit more as a shooter, as, as a, a mover, as a ball handler, all of it, just, just 
I would like to see him maybe get folded into the offense a little bit more intentionally in a way that he wasn't always last season. And part of that, again, is just the injuries. He wasn't always available. Um, but that, that kind of gets into, uh, you know, the, the, the reason I think that he, he's probably the guy that ends up coming off the bench for this team next season. Uh, and, and like we've said, the, the sort of the discussion of who comes off the bench, who starts, all that kind of thing gets overblown at times. But I do think his particular skill set and also just the skills of the other guys he's competing with for, for that spot, um, that, that lends itself more to coming off the bench and playing more of a connective role on second units than it does as, you know, the, the starting two guard next to Trey Young. And part of that is his defense where he's a solid defender, but he's not, he's not quite good enough. I don't think to really cover up for Trey on that end of the floor. And so maybe you look to a guy like Reddish who can do a little bit more of that. Um, but I, I think it, it just feels like Herder's overall blend of offensive skills kind of lends itself, especially w- when the, the starting kind of first unit offense is going to be so heliocentric and so Trey Young dominant for him to be in a little bit more of a motion system, a little bit more of an egalitarian second unit that feels like a little bit more of a natural fit for him. That makes sense. Um, my counterpoint to be would be this, and, and I'm not, I'm almost doing devil's advocate because I don't really have a strong opinion on this just yet, honestly, but the counterpoint would be that Herter, Herter is the only guy on the, on the roster other than Trey that we know is a good shooter. Right. Um, so not starting him and your, your wings are now the two, you know, I guess they will be second year players at that point with Cam and DeAndre. And I'm not sure that's enough shooting, but we'll, we'll, we'll find out. Um, but I agree with you. Like overall, I, I think ultimately there is certainly a world that still exists where Kevin Herter is just the full-time starting shooting guard next to Trey Young. That's still in play, but yeah. I think and he's a, being, he's a better player than both those guys right now as well. I should I was know. Gonna say, he's, I, he's a better player than Hunter or Reddish. I just think it's, it's a matter of fit and like his particular skill set. So I could definitely see a, a strong case for him continuing to start. For sure. And I, I was going to say this too, like I have some on notes as well. Like he was by pretty much any advanced metric as well as just the eye test, the third best player on the team this year, even with all the, you know, the stuff where he wasn't as good as some people wanted him to be, he was still the third best player on the team um, for the season, which is worth pointing out. But yeah, I mean, going back to the whole, the fit thing, even if, you know, even if it doesn't necessarily end up working in terms of just the full-time shooting guards, because there is some, if we're being honest, there is some, there are some fit questions defensively with a backcourt of Trey Young and Herter. That's not breaking news. We've all talked about that at different times, and I do think that Herter is a competent-ish defender. I, you know, he's got an average steal rate for a wing. He actually has an above-average block rate for a wing, which which makes me laugh every time I see it. But it's it's true. He has these kind of interesting um, instincts to block some shots from that spot. And defensively, he is kind of similar wise, to Kyle Korver in that sense, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Everybody the, the sort of come from fine. behind like, blocks. It's yeah. It's just that you know he's never going to be a good defender, like a plus plus defender. That's not going to happen. But I think he's okay. Like the problem is. You need better than okay next to Trey Young, and that's not that's just reality. It's not a shot at Trey or anything like that. It's just kind of the way you look at it. So, I'm with you. If if you tell me that just on this team alone, if you assume, especially if you assume that Reddish and Hunter can both shoot the ball effectively, then it does make a lot of sense to bring Herter off the bench with the current roster. And we'll talk about that more as we get closer, obviously. But I just want it to be, you know, Herter is still a guy who should be very much in the plan for this team right now. And I think 
it's just kind of the way things go when you draft two lottery picks. Those guys get a lot more attention than the guy yeah. you drafted at 19 the previous year. Even though Herter was this really nice story as a rookie, he was actually better in year two, even with all the injury stuff. Um, he, he just got a lot, a lot less attention, and probably for good reason, because you brought in two guys who are really talented and interesting players. But Herter is someone who I think gets lost in the shuffle and is going to be a good player. I think he's already a solid player. I made this point, I think, on a previous podcast, maybe, maybe even with you on Reddish Podcast, but... If we're being honest, even with Herter being the third best player on the team this year, what he did, again, only as only in his, in his second season, if he's just that player forever, which I don't think he's going to be, but if, he, if he's just that player, he's not a starter on a good team. He's just not, which is fine, and no one no one should assume that he's going to not improve at all. But that just kind of tells you again how shaky a lot of the supporting cast was. That Kevin Herter was the third best player on the team this year and probably wasn't a starting caliber shooting guard on a good team. It's just kind of the reality of the situation. Well, hang on. I, I was told that 21-year-olds who have good second seasons don't improve. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that alone because I saw exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm going to stay away from um, that right now. But, you know, it's, it's a good point. Like, it's just – he's Kevin Herter is very young, talented, and I think he didn't make the big leap that a lot of guys make in year two that we would hope to see from a guy like Hunter or a guy like Reddish in year two. And because of the, the that not, not, not necessarily happening – people sort of assume that he's not going to get better now, which I think is kind of silly. And part of that might, might have been him, by the way. There was an interesting uh, comment or two from Travis Schlenk in an interview with Chris Kirchner um, yeah. about about Herter not being in the best shape last summer before, before the season started. So maybe that's part of that is on him. And uh, to, to Schlenk, I guess to Herter's credit, he did say that things improved from there and now they're they're cool with where Herter is. But some of that's on him too because he uh, last summer was the first time he actually had a whole summer because the previous summer before the draft he was hurt and couldn't really work out. So, you know, maybe that's a part of it too. You, like you, you have to work out in the summer. And this is why this is a bizarre summer for everyone because I'm not sure how much work's getting done by anybody right now. But uh that's one thing to point out too is that maybe that's that's definitely on him if he if he was out of shape, but yeah. you're going to have to improve in the summer. Like all these guys have to do the work. You can't I mean guys do improve during the season. But the time where you really make strides is when your season ends and you go to the lab, basically, all summer long. Yeah. And, and I, I will say, for whatever this is worth, I think Lloyd Pierce has mentioned that Herter does have either a, a gym or a, like a weight room. He did say that on the, on the Zoom yeah. call. I think he mentioned that Kevin was like maybe the only guy. It's like one maybe of the Jeff few guys who actually has access to a workout yeah. facility. That's, uh, that's, I'll that's also good news. say that there were, there were games this year where like we'd go into the locker room uh, after the game and he he will have like he'll be coming out of the weight room after yep. playing 40 minutes in a game. So I I would not have have uh, pegged him as 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 the guy who would kind of let his conditioning get out of shape over the summer. And perhaps that was maybe a wake up call for him. And he really emphasized that this season. But uh, from what I could tell and just in my my very brief interactions with with Kevin this season um, and what I could tell from like his work ethic and everything. Uh, he seemed he seemed very you know devoted to getting stronger to getting better faster better shooter all that like the 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 work ethic did not seem to be in question i think especially during that that shoulder rehab i think he was he was fairly diligent about that um, and travis but did yes, say it, and travis did say he made sure to make that point to say look right. we're not worried about this anymore but it was just kind of that a little bit of, a little bit of background as to what, maybe why he didn't make as much of a leap going into this year as you might have expected yeah I also I'll, to just to wrap up the the whole you know idea of how you know where does he fit in the rotation yeah. all that I, I guess the the main source for my uh, my the, my thesis here my maybe even concern you could call it is I, I feel like he's just the type of player that needs to be involved I want to see him unleashed a little bit more 
And it's hard to unleash a player like that to his fullest extent next to a ball dominant point guard. And that's not Trey Young's fault. It's not anyone's fault. You know, it's just kind of the way things are. It's the way the roster is built. It's not to say that those two can't play with one another, but uh, it, it just, again, it's like his particular blend of skills, I think, is is best unleashed, you know, at its fullest. It's best, you know, he's best when he can do a lot of different things and impact the game in a lot of different ways. And I'm just not sure how much he's able to do that on offense if he's not touching the ball and if he's not really a dynamic and intentionally involved part of the offense. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think running more stuff for him um, is a good idea in general. And it also, also, it also requires him to be more dynamic off the ball. So it's kind of this two edged, a lot of this stuff is like a double edged sword with most things with Herter. It's like, he has to do his part and they have to do their part to get him going. And it's, uh, it's not just him. It's not just the team. Yeah, him him going off the ball is. I've been watching a lot of film. Uh, I will give a shout out to Andrew Kelly on the Peachtree Hoop staff, who's been talking about this, talking about this a lot offline and even on Twitter and things. Just talking about like the situations that her gets put in, um, or not or not gets put in. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's just uh, he's not a priority. He probably should be more of a priority offensively, but he also could help himself by just moving more and being more intentional and just being better at it. And just I guess going to Corver School would be the way that I would put it. Yeah. I wish yeah, I, had I agree. Yeah, and that, that's, That'd be good. that's well put too about how it, it's most things with Herder seem to be this, you know, meet halfway type of deal where the Hawks can do their part, but he needs to do his as well. And, you know, I'm fascinated to see just sort of where they meet and, and what that balance looks like and, and how it is achieved, you know, like what specific path do they take to, to really letting him be at his best? It does he even get there. You know, I think those are kind of open questions going into next season for him. For sure. Um, we've gone longer than an hour because you and I are talking about basketball. And that's what happens, Ben. Um, do you have any any other takeaways? And we talked about his defense briefly, so we could probably leave that there for now. But um, big picture, Herder or otherwise, before I let you get out of here? Uh, the, the one thing I noticed just watching film of him uh, as a shooter is he's really good shooting off of DHOs. Um, and and he's, a lot of that is, is defenders going under the DHO. So I'm curious as he proves himself more as a shooter, you know, do defenders start going over again against him more often? And then what's the counter to that? You know, does he have the downhill juice to really take advantage of that? And, and, you know, I guess how, how does the dynamic work with the way defenders guard him? And then how does he counter to that? Cause I do think that counter is eventually going to come. Um, and then, you know, the other thing would just be the feel. Like I watched, a lot of his uh, assists from this this past season recently, just kind of going through, uh, looking at kind of where they came from and, and what context he was put in. A lot of them are sort of just these quick hitting passes where he's attacking a closeout and making a really nice read. A lot of them are in the pick and roll as well, but I think he, he's he's much more of a connective player than a primary initiator. And I really like those kinds of players, just the guys who can get rid of the ball quickly, put the ball where it needs to be, uh, when it needs to be there and make good decisions, even if they're not necessarily the flashiest plays, just a, a really good connective cog of the offense. And I think that's that's the kind of player that he is. And it, it really helps that he's a great shooter too. But you really see, I thought this season especially, the feel, the intelligence, and the instincts really, really popped. And I, I think that's a really valuable thing to have on any team. Uh, and, and the Hawks, you know what, like we spent the last few minutes talking about, uh, I'd like to see them just integrate that more into their offense because you can do a lot with that kind of player you know he can help you pivot 
into a lot of different options, connect the dots in a lot of really interesting ways rather than just, okay, here's our primary pick and roll. Then we reverse the ball. Here's a second pick and roll. Like you can, you can, you have more avenues available to you if you unleash a connective player like Herder. For sure. And, you know, since the moment that he was drafted, I remember that night, they've been talking about his feel and his basketball IQ and the fact that he can create off the dribble and the way and his passing. They knew that and they liked that coming out of Maryland. It's not breaking news. I think people that watched him, if you just saw him, you would think, you know, six, seven white shooter and you might assume something if you didn't watch him in college. But this is what they've always thought Kevin Herter was going to be. They always saw him as more than a shooter and he is more than a shooter. Obviously, shooting is his number one skill because any, anybody that can shoot... 38, 39% from three on real volume in the NBA. That's that's a heck of a skill to have, and that's probably his most valuable thing still. But he does a lot of things well, and if uh, he keep, if he keeps improving on defense, that'll be a big thing as well. Because I think there's a path for him to be average defensively, and if he's just if he's average defensively with what he can do on offense, that's that's start that's a starting level player. So we'll see what that looks like. But I like I still like Kevin Herter quite a bit. Yeah, and I just I just wonder if average is good enough on defense in this particular backcourt. That's you the know, question. I just, yep. You <laughs> need something more than average, and that's kind of why I I lean toward maybe reddish is the more natural fit on this particular team. But you know, again, I think like I mentioned, Herder's the better player at this particular juncture. Um, the other thing too, as much as we sort of harped on his his lack of off ball movement, I do think he's a smart cutter when he wants to be. There were yep. many moments this season where he would. Um, he'd give the ball up against ball pressure to a big man and then immediately cut back door. And a lot of the time the big man didn't hit him because the Hawks just didn't have great passing big men this season. <laughs> but I think he's a, a smart, he's smart about sort of finding space without the ball, you know, kind of getting into the, the various cracks on the court, uh, just these pockets of open space and exploiting that. And I, I wonder, you know, as the Hawks get better just just smarter players as the young guys kind of mature and feel the game a little bit better can they make a little bit better use of that you know just him him kind of improvising these little cuts and give and goes and back doors and that kind of thing because that again that's one of those things that didn't really jump out to me in real time as i watched the season go along but upon further review that really popped to me just the instincts moving without the ball another one of those things where it's just those those quick decisions where it's give it up and then cut and if it's not there, then you you clear out and you you know let the action move to wherever it goes next. But that's something I think could be a you know, his cutting could be a, I think a staple of his game and something that he again it's contingent upon him becoming a better finisher at the rim. But if he can put those two things together, I think he's got the foundation as a cutter and as an off ball mover to create easy shots at the basket. It's just can he finish those shots? Can he hunt those shots out? Can he actually embrace the contact and finish through contact? rather than, you know, putting up those eight-foot floaters and kind of shying away from contesting big men. I'm glad you said that, because that was, that was the thing that I was going to point out as well. Um, just, you know, his he knows where to be, but there is some limitation when you're not comfortable at the rim or going towards the rim in the way that he hasn't been comfortable. And I think that's a, it's a good point that you're bringing up, that it's not, you know, not all off-ball movement's the same. He is good at that kind of stuff. I, wanted, I, I want him to be more relentless, I was, is the word I was thinking in my mind about his moving off the ball, like just purposeful, like his cuts, his sneaky cuts and stuff like that, like knowing where to be is actually good. But it's that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bust my behind on, on this possession going off three screens. Um, and even if I, don't get, if, I don't, if I don't get the ball, people will go, people, will, people will flock to him and that will open up other things. That's the kind of stuff that you want to see from Herder. Um, not every possession, cause that's just not realistic, but just the ability to kind of just, 
be on that Redick level, be on that clay level of just guys running around screens for 12 straight seconds. And again, it's not always going to pay off for you individually, but if you're, if you're that kind of shooter and, and you're taking what like we were talking about before eight or nine threes a game up to 10 threes a game and making them at a real high clip, you will be guarded. Like you shoot like that. That's kind of the biggest thing. And that's, it goes beyond percentages too. That's something, something as Trey young. And it, obviously his is different because this is more on the ball, but even when Trey doesn't make 39, 40% for three, he gets guarded like a great shooter. And that's half the battle, honestly. It's just the gravity that Kevin Herter is going to have off the ball if he keeps playing like that and making shots that way. And that's he's the only guy on the team that's not named Trey Young that has that kind of gravity offensively, or at least that potential gravity offensively, which is a big thing to try to exploit. Yeah, certainly. Defenders will chase you hard if you run hard off of screens, but they'll chase you even harder and freak out even more if they believe that you'll actually take the shot and that you can make it at a high level. <laughs> yep. and, and that's sort of... Herder has, I think, the the latter component. It's the first two that maybe needs to be amplified a little bit more and and you know increase the volume on the the moving and the volume of attempts. But you know certainly that the thing we've kind of talked around this whole time is that he's he's just a really good shooter. Like we he's yes, he he's is. I think his his percentage even undersells the quality of shooter he is because again he dealt with some of those injuries and I think his his lift and his his base on his jump shot wasn't as strong as it could have been earlier in the year. And when he was clicking, like he, he is, like you said, he's as good a shooter as anyone outside of Trey young on this team. And I think we'll continue to be, I mean, even as they add better shooters, uh, he, he's going to continue to be one of the best shooters on this team. And, you know, who knows, maybe he's eventually one of the best shooters in the league. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd go that far just yet, but no. he is a really, really good shooter. He's got a quick release. He's got, I think a, a versatile release. I think he can shoot in a lot of different contexts and that you know that's kind of as much as you can look at the the other elements of his, of his game that he's good at or that he can improve. It's really the shooting that makes it all work, and it, it's just finding a way to leverage that shooting into doing other things. That's uh, very well said. That is still his number one skill, and uh, I think he'll probably build off of that. It's a big uh, you know year three will be big for him in a lot of ways as he starts to. Uh, battle directly or we continue battling directly for playing time and all that stuff with the other wings and uh again as we've said sort of talked around as well on this podcast and other podcasts the Hawks are going to sign someone or they're going to trade for someone they're going to add more options it's not always going to just be going to be these guys so that's important to keep in mind as well they're going to they're going to add other bodies who can play and that won't be just Kevin Herter at the end of the day uh, in this particular role so um Ben Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Any final thoughts before you sign off? And please, uh, please plug yourself because you have lots of things going on. You're, you're writing about the Hawks even when there's nothing going on. Trying to, yeah. It's uh, it's with and less going on, it becomes harder and harder. But yeah, we're trying to to find topics to to sort of explore. Uh, just finished up the player review series over at si.com/nba/hawks, where we basically hit on on every player and and including Lloyd Pierce. Uh, and just sort of a season recap and and for a team like this try to spin it forward in the next season and, and beyond because they are kind of on the uptick one would hope um we, the one guy i think we didn't get was john collins but that's because i wrote a huge profile on him just before i started this series so if you want to go back and read that he's the only one that's missing in the sequence uh that's why uh other than that kind of just trying to keep you know keep folks updated on on the the daily, you know, kind of day to day of of COVID and and what that means for the NBA. And right now, the Hawks are sort of in the middle of this: will they or won't they open the practice facility situation? Uh, it seems at the, the moment like they won't. 
Uh, so, you know, I'll keep updating that situation as it unfolds. <laughs> you can listen to the Read and React NBA podcast, basically wherever you find podcasts. That's me and uh, another guy basically talking about the NBA. If you want to get less of a Hawks-specific perspective and more of just a national general NBA uh, talk with with hopefully the same level of nuance and substance that you get on this one, uh, you can check that out as well. And other than that, just just trying to find things to talk about and write about as we uh, we have less and less to to, to mine on uh, in these days. Yeah, I would love it if if the, if the uh, league would just tell me when the lottery is and when the draft's going to be, but they can't even do that. So it's uh, we're all in this holding pattern, and uh, we will wait, we will wait with bated breath about the next update about May eighth versus May 9th versus May tenth on the. Uh, practice facilities opening and by the way as funny as that is and I, I talked about it yesterday on the podcast so I'm, I'm guilty of this as well I wrote about it too um even if they open on the 8th the Hawks may not open and even if they do it'll be for individual workouts which doesn't do anything <laughs> for actual content so uh yeah we're all just hoping the basketball we played on that's where I am right now anyway well listen if they don't want to open up the practice facility I will still take a key uh and I will still use it even if it's uh, not in the best interest of my safety because man the biggest thing I've missed this whole hiatus and, and just the time of lockdown and isolation is not being able to play basketball. I haven't played basketball in like two months, and it's the worst feeling in the world. I am fully retired at this point from playing basketball. Um, I got I got a bad knee and a bad back, but I, I, I miss playing sometimes. I miss uh, lots of things during this pandemic, but uh, you're not the only person that I know. I, I know a good friend of the program, Kevin Chenard, friend of ours, was tweeting about um, like how soon can we play five on five at like a pickup game, and I was like, oh Kevin, it's going to be a while, buddy. Uh, I, I had that thought in my brain, so you're not, yeah, you're not, not alone. Soon. People, people, not people soon. are going to be uh, right there with you on that one. It's honestly, it's been the worst part of the social distancing for me, which I guess is a, <laughs> it, it is that's a, a win pretty for you, pretty yeah. yeah, best case scenario there. My my uh, hiatus has not been very difficult. I've been I'm trying to stay smart and safe and everything, uh, and have been fairly lucky, but. Uh, yes, that that has been a little bit of an annoyance to to not be able to play pickup and just have that that outlet because that's really the only way I ever get exercise. I've had to run, uh, just just jog aimlessly, which sucks. I hate doing that, but <laughs> it's really the only way that I can stay in shape right now. So uh, as go. soon as basketball is back, the world will be a better place. You heard it here first, Travis Slank. Give Ben a key to the practice facility just so he can go do layups by himself. <laughs> Something that uh, something other than running, just like dribbling drills or something for Ben. Uh, maybe I will literally do dribbling drills for two hours if they let me. Maybe they'll let you work out the players when they come. Yeah, back. <laughs> it can't, be, it can't be coaches. You might as well uh, apply. Teach Kevin Hurd or something about off ball movement. That's the coach, only way. Coaches are not allowed to be in the, in, in the facility, so maybe you'll uh, <laughs> draw draw a short straw and be able to be there. So. Anyway, all right, thanks, Ben, for joining me. As always, we will have part five at some point in the near future, talking about Trey Young and more at the point guard spot. But I appreciate it, man. As for everybody else, please subscribe to the podcast. Check out Ben's work and Ben's podcast, and we'll see everybody next time.